Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Southern Appalachian Herbal Podcast. I'm Judson Carroll, and I'm an herbalist. I'm also a wild crafter, a gardener, and herb grower. I'm coming to you from high atop the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, just a stone's throw from the Tennessee line, overlooking the Pisgah National Forest, absolutely surrounded by the bounty of God's green earth. I spent most of my life wandering these mountains and learning about plants from the old timers and all sorts of characters. On this show, we'll talk about herbs and how to use them, how to find them, how to grow them, how to make preparations. We'll talk about a lot of things. We can also talk about permaculture, homesteading, foraging, and living off the land. Most anything, really. You can email me at southernappalachianherbs at gmail.com if you have a question or a comment. You can also contact me through the Grow Network, where I'm a regular contributor and a moderator for the forums. And my blog is, of course, Southern Appalachian Herbs at blogspot.com. All right, y'all. I'm going to sit my guitar down. Let's talk about herbs. Hey, y'all. Welcome to this week's show. I'm going to jump right into the herbs again this week because... Uh, there's actually not a whole lot for me to report right now. Yeah, I've done very little this week except watch it pour rain almost constantly and write. I've got a lot of writing done. Can't be out in the garden as much as I want to. Can't be out in the woods or fishing as much as I want to. But, you know, that's life where I live and uh, it's worth it. <laughs> it's really nice to wake up in the morning. It's nice and cool and foggy and there are mushrooms everywhere. And, and, you know, everything looks like something out of, uh, you know, one of those Lord of the Rings movies. I mean, that's, that's the environment I live in and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, but we do. Yeah. We get a lot of rain. Uh, sometimes I feel like I could be growing mushrooms on my clothing or even my skin. I get drenched and, and, and in that fog so much. But, uh, I do have one, uh, interesting thing to report. There is a publication. It's on Substack. It's called, all right, now y'all know <laughs> I'm going to pronounce Latin with a Southern accent. I probably don't pronounce Latin properly, but <laughs> it's Missio Dei. That is spelled M-I-S-S-I-O-D-E-I. Missio Dei. And you can find it on Substack. And I'm telling you this because they have recently invited me to submit a uh, articles to them. And it's uh, pretty great. Uh, it, it's really good. They want me to focus on my book, The History and Practice of uh, Christian Herbal Medicine. I'm actually taking excerpts from that book, much like I, you know, I do in my podcast with some other books. Like today, when I talk about uh, uh, viburnum or cramp bark, that will be uh, largely drawn from my book, uh, The Encyclopedia of Medicinal Bitter Herbs. Well, on their site, which is a Christian site, I get to talk about the history of Christian herbal medicine as it developed through the centuries. And as I've said before, I really think my this book, uh, or that book, I guess I should say, The uh, History and Practice of Christian Herbal Medicine, is perhaps the most important book I've ever written. It is the most full of history and interesting. I, I really tell the story of the development of herbal medicine. Uh, from pre-Christianity to essentially the modern day. And I really focus on the figures, the interesting characters that preserve this legacy, that uh, develop this legacy that we all work with today. And as I say many times, you're not going to be taught that in college. You're not going to be taught that in most herb schools. I mean, there is a an herb school that a name I will not mention. <laughs> and at least a a couple of years ago, they are offering huge tuition discounts for, let's see, women 
anyone in the LGBTQXYZ community or people of non-Christian religions. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I have looked at their curriculum, and I don't think they're going to teach you the history of herbal medicine. You're going to pay a whole lot of money and not get the full story. Huge amount of tuition. I mean, you would think this was a university and they were offering you credentials, but uh, there are no credentials. <laughs> if you're an herbalist, your uh, ability as an herbalist hinges on your knowledge and ability, your experience. There is no licensure. There is no accreditation. There is no piece of paper you can hang on the wall that really says you're qualified to do what you can do. Okay. You know, I could say that's true of most colleges these days, too, because Frankly, a lot of people are coming out of college with worthless degrees and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even in debt. They would have been much better off going to a trade school, learning to work on automobile or plumbing or, you know, something practical where they could actually earn a living. And then while they're earning that living, if they want to take a few classes at the university and something that they were really interested in, go for it. You know, I love to go back to school every now and then and take a class in, you know, something I never would have thought of before. Actually, I have a, some strong issues with the university that is near me that, uh, <laughs> let's just say, uh, I'm not a fan of the UNC system, okay? And if you followed me for a while, you probably know why. Uh, but, you know, you can absolutely work as an electrician and walk into a house and immediately charge them 150 bucks just for showing up, okay? There are really not very many, even PhDs, that can earn that much money per hour. So, absolutely. I would recommend go to a community college, a technical school, study horticulture, study carpentry, study welding. Welders make a fortune. Okay. And by the time you're 20, you're going to be making a lot of money. And then you can take a couple hours a day and go to school part time. I mean, four college classes is considered full time, believe it or not. And if you go to a state university, the Pell Grant pretty much covers the whole bill. Uh, never, <laughs> never, unless it's really worth it to you. Um, Go to a private college that's going to charge you, you know, 50000 a semester and up or one of those quasi private colleges like um, the ones that used to be religious schools, like some of the Presbyterian colleges near me that I absolutely despise because I actually took a couple classes from them. They were worthless and they saddled me with $50,000 in debt when I was 18 years old. Um, <laughs> They now call themselves universities usually because they, you know, sort of qualify, but they still charge a huge amount of money for nothing. And, you know, then if you want to take a few classes at a university, it becomes a whole lot more affordable. And uh, maybe you want to take something, some classes in something practical, you know, maybe a science, maybe actually go to a full horticulture program. If you're only a couple of uh, colleges in every state that teach agriculture or horticulture. Um, North Carolina, it is essentially NC State University, and that's it. In Georgia, I think it was basically the University of Georgia, right, where I went to school and actually got a very good education uh, inexpensively because I was a Georgia resident at the time and a little bit older and was working. I worked my whole way through, and uh, yeah, if I had to do it over again, I would have never have set foot in a private college. I went to one for a semester or two that was Presbyterian. I had one for a semester or two that was Southern Baptist. I learned absolutely nothing and got ripped off completely. Uh, but anyway, I, there are also very good religious schools, and some of them are actually affordable. And, of course, if you were going to go into theology or something, you know, theology or uh, biblical studies or Christian history, you probably would be better off going to a religious school. Otherwise, you're going to be going to a public university uh, and probably be taught by atheists who will do nothing but um, denigrate your faith and try to remove it from you. That's what they do. They actually do that at Presbyterian colleges, too, by the way. If you ever think you're sending your Presbyterian, like, you know, a lot of people are in North Carolina, and you're going to send your kid to a good Presbyterian school, and they're going to come out with, you know, good Christian faith and morals and values, forget it. They're going to go in there, and they're going to be called back communist, and they're going to be uh, probably come out of there um, a drug addict, pregnant, having gotten someone pregnant. Uh, they're going to be paying financially and with their lives for the rest of their lives for the privilege of going to a supposedly Presbyterian college. I can tell you there are at least two Presbyterian colleges in North Carolina where the faculty is almost entirely communist. 
and essentially atheist. But they call themselves Presbyterian and question it, right? So getting back to what really matters, <laughs> as I said, Missio Dei is a publication online, and they have invited me to write for them. And I get to uh, submit articles about my book, History and Practice of Christian Herbal Medicine. I hope you all check them out. Like I said, they're on Substack. You can just search for their name online. Just go M-I-S-S-I-O-D-E-I, and it'll pull it up immediately. Or you can go to Substack and find them directly. And um, it is a Catholic website, by the way. You probably know that because it uses Latin in the name. Um, if you're Catholic, you're going to love it. And I'm telling you, if you're not Catholic, uh, check it out anyway, because you probably like my articles, at the very least. Uh, but, you know, interfaith dialogue is one thing. It's like, you know, when Christians are talking with Muslims and Jews and Hindus and all that, that's always good. You know, always a good thing. Understanding our common humanity it kind of is what can help us end wars and, and not, you know, have as much conflict as we have. But dialogue within the Christian faith, uh, interdenominational dialogue, if you want to think of it, or ecumenical dialogue, as it's called properly, is remarkably important. <laughs> you know, uh, I am a, uh, I read the Bible a lot. Let's just put it that way. I grew up uh, Baptist and, and was Methodist for a time. I was a Methodist youth minister, actually, before I converted to Catholicism. I know my Bible. I actually usually read the entire Bible every year, you know, five pages a day, five days a week. You can do it. It's no big deal. It says in the Bible, it says in the New Testament, that divisions among Christians are to be absolutely avoided because this is a can. According to the words of the Bible, divisions among Christians are dividing the body of Christ. They're like crucifying our Lord again. Now, I understand there are different denominations, and there are actually uh, well over 2,000 denominations in um, Christianity, all of which believe very different things, okay? No two of those denominations believe the exact same thing. We have a lot of divisions. Really important to heal those divisions, to bring together unity uh, through dialogue, if we want to actually do what we're called to do as Christians, which, as Jesus said, love one another. There is no place for bigotry within Christianity. A lot of times people think of bigotry in terms of race, okay? And it can be, yeah. If you're one race and you hate another race just on the basis of their race, you're not being a good Christian. Again, the Bible says there is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither, you know, uh, male nor female. We're all the same as, as Christians. Those differences may be distinct, between you know gender and race and nationality and ethnicity and all that. But as Christians, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no difference between us. So, you know, if you think hating someone because of their race is okay, you're definitely not a Christian. Jesus doesn't like that. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We said don't do it. Uh, also, if you think hating someone because of their denomination is okay, you're not a Christian. You're not doing what Jesus asked. If you're... I mean, I don't care if you're a Protestant that hates Catholics, if you're a Catholic that hates Protestants, if you're, I don't know, Greek Orthodox and you hate the Pentecostals, okay, well, whatever. That's not what Jesus said to do. He didn't say anything along the lines of accepting what you know is wrong, but he did say, love one another as I have loved you. And he loved us enough to die for us. So if you want to be a good Christian, 
always, always treat your fellow Christians of other denominations with love and respect. And so if you want to find out uh, a lot about what, um, basically these are a bunch of, I would say Catholics between the age of maybe early 20s to um, 60s, you know, it, it's fairly uh, contemporary. And it's uh, really good, insightful articles. Every day you get uh, a biblically based uh, study of the gospel passage for that day. You know, in the Catholic Church, we have a calendar. There's a there are gospel readings, there are Bible readings for every day. And, well, they send that out every morning with a nice little commentary. It's nice. Uh, Protestants usually call that a devotional. It's uh, just a, a difference in terms. And I think if you um, if you check out at least my articles on there, I'd really appreciate it. And as I've, I've mentioned before, even though I think that is my most important book, my most interesting book even, it has hardly sold any copies at all. So if you're looking for a good book to read, especially one that you can share with friends and family and teach them that herbalism really has a strong Christian history of various denominations, by the way. I mean, there are Catholic and Protestant herbalists that I talk about in this book. And in various nations, various cultural traditions, uh, I hope you'll buy my book. It's available on Amazon, or you can get the PDF directly from me. But I'd really like you to have a paper copy of this book so you can hand it to someone and let them read it. You know, I would like for when you have kids, grandkids, nieces and nephews, and they're interested in alternative medicine, or maybe they're interested in nature. You know, that's how I came to it, was through nature. And uh, the, our culture is pulling them away, saying, you know, you have to be essentially a neo-pagan. You have you can't have anything to do with Christianity if you want to embrace nature and herbalism and alternative medicine. You can say, no, wait a minute, uh, that's false. Uh, that's probably probably something you'd be taught in Presbyterian College. <laughs> Here's a book, and you can take this book and you can read the actual people, the actual great figures of herbal medicine over the last 2,000 plus years and know your history and your heritage. That's why I wrote the book. And uh, like I said, I really would like to see this one on every shelf of every Christian herbalist in America and the rest of the world. If I had my druthers, as we say in the South, you know, that means I'd rather. So it gets short brother. If I had my druthers, that would be my dream. I didn't actually write this one for the money. I kind of saw it as sort of almost a mission. And uh, it's a good book. It actually is. Uh, I did uh, an interview with a, a lady uh, podcast, the Holistic Health podcast the other day, and she started reading to me a passage from my book. And of course, it's been over a year since I wrote, wrote it. And I don't read my own work, by the way. I don't even have a copy of books physically in the house. I don't know. To me, that seems almost like a egoistic over to have my own books on the shelf. So I don't buy my own work. And she starts reading to me um, a passage from my book. And I didn't know it was my book. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm thinking, hey, that's pretty good. And then I realized it was with me that wrote it. So I, I kind of blushed a little bit, I think, on camera when I realized that. But anyway, y'all, I'm going to get uh, into the herbs. And like I said, we have a very interesting one this week. It is viburnum or cramp bark. Viburnum has been used. It's another of those herbs that's been used for thousands. I mean, Dioscorides wrote about viburnum most likely. Okay. Um, name he used for it for viburnum is um, a little tricky. He could have been meaning another plant, but given the characteristic that he listed for the plant, we believe it was viburnum. Now you may know viburnum as gelder rose if you come from the British tradition. That's what they call viburnum in England and well, some places in you know Western Europe. But it's mainly an English name. Uh, you may know it as uh, withrod. Withrod is also a very British name. But if you're American, uh, you probably know our native species like black hall or possum hall even that are really, you know, fairly common uh, plants in the South. Uh, you can find these in most places. They're much used by the Native Americans and by early settlers who recognize them immediately as being just like the gelder rose which is, uh, by the way, Viburnum opulus. That is the one that most of the documentation is on. Most of the old books are talking about Viburnum opulus, but the Viburnums are pretty much interchangeable. They are usually bushes or shrubs, though they can get pretty big, and uh, they 
some can actually be considered tree. But uh, they have flowers like a hydrangea. And some of them, most of them, have berries that are like cranberries. So a lot of times these plants get confused with hydrangea, which don't do that. Hydrangea can be toxic in certain amounts. We'll double check that. Sometimes they can be confused with cranberries, and you're perfectly safe, uh, as far as I know. I mean, the, both fruits are edible, and people uh, in the South make a lot, or they used to. I mean, especially in the swampy areas, like where I spent half my life down in the eastern part of North Carolina, you know, going down to Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana, Mississippi, where they have a ton of haws, black haws, possum haws, all that. Uh, they make jam out of it, and that's just a... a used to be, and for some people still is, a tradition that the uh, parents or grandparents take the kids out to gather uh, halls, hallberries, and they're ripe, and they bring them in, they cook them down, and just make these incredibly delicious jellies and jams, and preserves. So it's really very, very good fruit. But the interesting thing about black hall, gelder rose, all of these, the viburnums, for us, herbalists, is they are among our most effective antispasmodics. What that means is they help with cramping. Okay, that can be any kind of cramping. Okay, if uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, young ladies, a lot of times, young ladies will ask me what they can do about menstrual cramp. First thing, viburnum called cramp bark for a reason, right? I, I always say, you know, look into this. Of course, I don't prescribe anything. I don't recommend anything for a specific condition. But I say traditionally this has been used by Europeans and Native Americans and a whole lot of other people well into uh, Central Europe and beyond that had very little contact, no contact. They found the same plant useful for the same purpose. That's what we call empirical evidence. And that is the heart of herbal medicine and our tradition. It is incredibly good for the menstrual cramps. It is incredibly good for muscle cramps, sore, tight, knotted muscles, you know, foot cramps, Charlie horses. It is incredibly good for uh, many types of headaches. Uh, it's very good for um, intestinal cramping, like if you're having diarrhea or something. It is an antispasmodic. And for that reason, if you can grow one, there should be one of these plants in everybody's yard. I mean, really, they're that effective. They're that useful. And uh, if you can't, definitely have some on hand. Usually I will combine viburnum with skullcap. Skullcap is a, a just a nice little herb with a really unique little flower. And it's uh, also antispasmodic and relaxing. My friend Tori, again, reminded me of a video by uh, uh, Doc Jones, Dr. Patrick Jones, just recently where he was talking about uh, the uses of viburnum and skullcap, and he mentioned in particular uh, kidney stones. And it's, it's very valid when, you know, you're trying to pass a kidney stone. The problem is trying to pass that stone through a narrow tube, right? Well, viburnum and skullcap uh, dilate blood vessels, uh, relax the muscles, relax the tube that little stone is trying to pass through, and can make it easier to pass the stone. So whether you're, uh, you know, a woman of childbearing uh, years, or you're a guy like me who has a lot of neck and back pain due to some old back injuries, you know, you're somebody that gets kidney stones or whatever. If you just need an herb to help uh, just relax your muscles, to help uh, reduce the physical stress and tension and pain, I think viburnum is one of the very best herbs you can grow, buy, use, whatever. Miss uh, Grieve gave a lot of history on viburnum in her book. And again, she's talking the Gelder Rose viburnum opulus. That in England, it was a shrub growing five to 10 feet uh, tall and was in the elder family, often found in coppices and hedgerows throughout England. But she said it was rare in Scotland, and she mentions it was indigenous to North America, um, where it's specifically found in low ground, swampy areas in the eastern United States. Now, that's our halls. Our halls are a really swampy, loving plant, okay? If you're going to grow the Viburnum opulus, the Gilder Rose, or uh, the, you know, fairly uh, closely related Withrod, which is Viburnum 
Casanoides, I don't know, Casanoides, um, you're going to not have good success in the hot, humid, swampy areas of the South. Those are ones you might want to grow up north. Uh, you can grow Gilder Rose north of the Mason-Dixon line in many places. I can grow it in the mountains. You know, as I've said many times where I live in the mountains, uh, the climate is somewhere between Washington State and uh, upstate New York. I mean, we have a really weird climate where I live and uh, I can grow a lot of these northern plants and I can grow Gilder Rose. In fact, I um, have on my order list some shrubs to put into my yard uh, next spring. I'm going to get them uh, bare root and uh, plant them out. So anyway, I need always need more viburnum, actually. Another very interesting folk use that I guess I should uh, mention, though it's one that I'm not going to recommend, document a lot, probably going to mention a couple of times as we go through this one, is using viburnum uh, for women who have a history of miscarriage to prevent um, contractions. It's uh, had a lot of use of that with Native Americans and Europeans. Look into it. Do your research. I always say, you know, I don't recommend any herbs during present pregnancy, even the ones that are considered safe. You do your research and decide for yourself. But it has been traditionally used for that purpose quite a bit, quite a bit for centuries. It, would, it was one of the go-to remedies that a midwife would recommend. And Miss um, Grieve, well, she talks about how the plant grows in France and Gelder was originally a Dutch word. It was it was popular, you know, that far north. So obviously it does kind of like a cooler climate. She mentions that the berries are antiscorbutic, which actually just means they have vitamin C. And of course, that was very important when people used to suffer from scurvy. Officially, she gives its uh, its medicinal uses. This would have been the known from the Materia Medica of the time, what pharmacists and doctors were using as well as herbalists. Uh, the bark known as cramp bark is employed in herbal medicine. Uh, it used to formally be included in the United States Pharmacopeia, but is now omitted. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Though it has been introduced into the national formulary in the form of a fluid extract compound tincture, and compound elixir were used as a nerve sedative, antispasmodic, and in asthma and, and hysteria. Now, when she's talking asthma, in this case, she's meaning spasmodic asthma. That used to be, believe it or not, uh, almost all cases of asthma were spasmodic asthma, where the bronchioles were spasming. And so um, antispasmodics like viburnum would stop spasms, obviously, and help prevent the asthma attack or help stop the asthma attack. Unfortunately, about 90% of asthma now is inflammatory asthma, um, probably in large part due to not only toxins in our environment, our air is actually cleaner than it was a few uh, decades ago, but toxins in our water, pasteurized milk, overuse of prescription drugs and antibiotics, and just a lot of the toxins, the plastics that are in our environment and such, we have sort of an epidemic of asthma now, very much like we have an epidemic of diabetes, really because we just won't eat real food. The Amish, the Amish have the lowest instances of asthma in the United States. What do the Amish do differently? Well, they drink unpasteurized milk for one thing. They eat natural foods that they grow themselves and the livestock they raise on their properties, and they don't have a lot of plastics. They don't have a lot of plastic. Bottled water. Think about that bottled water you're drinking, all the chemicals, the carcinogenic, inflammatory, and estrogenic chemicals it's picking up from just being in a plastic bottle. You know, God didn't make water to come in a plastic bottle. <laughs> I, uh, I love this old uh, spring on one of my favorite trails in the mountains. It used to be a cabin up that way. And they had this wonderful little boxed-in spring. And in there, 
I assume it's still there. It's been there all my life, was probably a hundred year old when I was a kid, at least, tin cup suspended from a chain. And anybody who passed by who knew it was there, a little off the trail, you walk by, you dip out fresh, cold spring water, drink it out of that tin cup and put it right back into the spring. Thousands of people did that for probably a hundred years. And uh, best tasting water, it's actually invigorating. If you were ever, um, you know, you're out on a long hike and you're sweating a lot and uh, you're depleting a lot of your body's minerals, that spring water is so full of minerals coming up out of that rocky soil and it's so cold. Get a couple sips of that and you're actually refreshed. It's like, you know, you're ready to go again. It's almost like magic water, kind of the way that I think about it. And, you know, really there's a whole... There's a whole philosophy behind the sort of the restorative powers of water. We've talked about that a lot before. But uh, Sepp Holzer is a uh, permaculture guy. He's also an herbalist, a real legend in permaculture, though. He lives high up in the, um, the Alps in uh, Austria. He inherited land that was considered to be too steep to grow anything on. And he turned it into one of the most productive farms. He makes little sun traps and nooks. He actually grows citrus up in the Alps. Tropical citrus up in the Alps of Austria. The man's a genius. But he also subscribes to some of the uh, biodynamic dynamic principles of water. And he has this whole system on his property. You can see some of this on YouTube. Uh, it's S-E-P-P. And I'm just going from memory here. I think it's H-O-L-Z-E-R. There could be another letter in there somewhere. But anyway, Sepp Holzer. He has water that goes through all these little different holding ponds, and he has fountains, and he believes that the water kind of energizes differently as it flows down the mountain and turns, has whirlpools, vortexes in different directions. And he talks about when he's away from his farm, he feels like an old man, and he's, he's up in years, right? But when he's on his farm and he's drinking that water, he never gets sick, and he has tons of energy, and he can work harder, and he feels like a young man. I think there actually is some truth to that, even if it's just a matter of the uh, minerals that come from natural mountain spring water that isn't contaminated by plastic. I don't care if your bottled water says spring water, it's no better than the water coming out of your tap. I'm sorry to have to inform you of that, but actually your tap water may even be cleaner. You can find a million studies that'll back that up. They found the tap water in LA, in Los Angeles, was more pure and cleaner than most of the premium brands of bottled water. And, if, you know, if people start drinking their tap water and insisting that it not be treated with fluoride and chlorine and chloramine and all the chemicals that are in it, uh, we could keep a lot of those plastic bottles out of our waters. As a fisherman, I'm very aware that in, you know, rivers, lakes, the ocean, when, I mean, there's just trash everywhere. and It's all plastic. It's not good. I don't care if you're an environmentalist or not. I mean, I'm not particularly that much of an environmentalist, but I know that we're about knee deep in plastic water bottles these days and those idiotic face masks they force people to wear for COVID. Back to herbs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she says that the bark uh, collected in uh, uh, Northern Europe was being used in their pharmacopoeia at the time. Now, Anna, completely, you know, flip that over on the other side, and we're going to go to the American South. And in resources of the Southern Fields and Forests, many times, one of my favorite books, written by a botanist for the Confederate government to substitute for all the imports they couldn't get anymore during the Union blockade. He went through and found all our useful plants and documented them. It's massive, and it's well worth the price if you can find a copy. There are reprints, um, just like facsimiles. Um, but, the, you know, the book was written in the uh, 1850s. So anyway, if you could, well, 1860s. If you could find a copy, it would be a really nice collectible. But you get a facsimile. Uh, they said in Resources of the Southern Field and Forest, specifically a black haw. It's one of our native haws. Of course, he mentions it's edible fruit. You know, he found it in Atlanta. He found it in Mississippi. He went throughout the South. He's finding it everywhere. He cites uh, a physician who was practicing in Atlanta in the, at the time who wrote in the Surgeon's Journal, I believe it was actually the uh, Medical and Surgery Journal of 1847, that the medicinal properties of this plant were regarded as nervine, antispasmodic, astringent, 
diuretic and tonic, and calms nervous disorders of pregnancy and uterine diseases. He said it was a valuable remedial agent. He said it is particularly valuable in preventing abortion and miscarriage, whether habitual or otherwise, whether threatened from accidental cause or criminal drugging. The editor of the same journal adds his testimony in favor that the same remedy and details of several cases of threatened miscarriage was promptly arrested. Now, again, I cannot recommend, nor would I recommend this herb to be used. But if you have a history of premature contractions or you are worried about it, talk with your doctor, <laughs> provide him or her uh, with some medical information on this herb. Go to sources like I'll get to in a minute, the physician's desk reference for herbal medicine. Show them that it has legitimate historical uses to help prevent miscarriage. Ask them to research it and then talk with them about whether you should use it or not. Uh, same if you have a midwife. If your doctor is unwilling to discuss that with you, um, they're not treating you as an intelligent person. You need to find another doctor. I don't care how convenient it is. I don't care how much you like them. If they don't have enough respect for you, um, after all, you're paying them. Doctors seem to be the one profession where they want to, where they pride themselves in telling the customer they're wrong. At least insist, give them the information and insist they do the research and let you know if it's a good idea or not. I don't have a lot of respect for a doctor who doesn't respect his or her. There's another tangent I could go on for a while, and I won't. <laughs> In King's American Dispensatory of 1898, they cover uh, Viburnum opulus, which is the Gilder Rose, and also uh, Black Hall, and uh, a couple probably that are interchangeable with Black Hall are native halls. But as for the Viburnum opulus, this was uh, action medicinal uses and, and dosages uh, for the time, this was official information in a medical book in 1898. High, uh, it was called high bush cranberry or high cranberry in America. That's another name for the uh, viburnum opulus, the gelder rose, because of that cranberry-like fruit. They said high cranberry bark is a powerful antispasmodic, and in consequence of this property, it is more generally known among American practitioners by the name of cramp bark. It is very effective in relaxing cramps and spasms of all kind, such as asthma, hysteria, cramps of the limbs or other parts, uh, especially useful in females, especially during pregnancy, and is said to be highly beneficial to those who are subject to convulsions during pregnancy or at the time of parturition, preventing the attacks entirely. It's used daily for the last two months of gestation. Same warning as before, don't you know, consult your doctor, but this was what this would have been the information a doctor was using and prescribing from in 1898. Maybe this is one of those sources you want to bring your doctor. <laughs> Go look online. You can find the full volume, King's American Dispensatory, 1898. There's a very good website. Let me see if I can find that website real quick. I'll give you the name. It's called Henriette's Herbal Homepage. Uh, if I remember correctly, Henriette, maybe... Dutch. Anyway, she's really dedicated years, years, taking uh, decades <laughs> to taking a lot of these old herbal books and uh, putting them online for everyone. And that's uh, Henry Etz. That's H-E-N-R-I-E-T-T-E-S dash herb dot com. On there, you will find Kings. It's K-I-N-G apostrophe S. American Dispensatory of 1898. Look for Viburnum, and you will find these references if you need to print them out. And that would be uh, probably a good starting place, actually. He, uh, Kings goes on to say that, like Viburnum prunifolium, which is our black hole and such, it is a remedy for the prevention of abortion and to prepare the way for the process of parturition. It allays uterine irritation with a tendency to terminate in hysteria, while in the neuralgic and spasmodic forms of dysmenorrhea, it is a favorite remedy with many physicians. Hysteria is an old term. I realize people may find it offensive. 
these days. Uh, but I think you understand kind of where they were uh, going with that idea. He said it, 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 or they say it has been used in spasmodic contractions of the bladder and in spasmodic stricture. The action of this agent closely resembles that of the black hall, and there is reason to believe that the two are interchangeable for the same purpose. So we'll go to what King said about black hall. Uh, we'll see. Specifically for viburnum opulus, they say specific indications and uses cramps, uterine pain with spasmodic action, pain in the thighs and back, bearing down, expulsive pains, neuralgic or spasmodic dysmenorrhea, and as an anti-abortive. Uh, now, specifically for Blackhaw, they said, of the phys physiological actions of this agent, little is known. Now, it was a native herb at the time, and you got to remember this is 1898. It had not been as thoroughly uh, investigated as Fibernum opulus. Uh, to the taste, is bitter and slightly ar aromatic. Large doses could produce uh, nausea and vomiting. That it has a decided affinity for the female reproductive organs is well established by Dr. D.L. Ferries, they raise, I don't know, of Mississippi, who brought the remedy forward. It was described as having nervine, antispasmodic, tonic, astringent, and diuretic properties. To these, Professor King adds alternative. Uh, decoctions of the drug were formerly used as a gargle, a wash for indolent ulcers, that's don't want to heal, you know, pores, basically, uh, and in various uh, ophthalmic disorders. By its astringency, it has proved a value in diarrhea and dysentery. It has been recommended for jaundice. And they talk a little bit about a different remedy for jaundice. Uh, said to, uh, Palpitations of the heart are, is said to have been relieved by it. Such cases are uh, sympathetic disturbances generally near the menstrual period. It is principally its principal use in the present day is in disorders of female organs and reproduction. As a uterine tonic, it is unquestionably of great utility. It restores normal innervations, improves circulations, and corrects impaired nutrition of these organs. In irritable conditions of the uterus, incident uh, of the uterus incident to highly nervous women, or as the result of overwork. It will be found an admirable agent. Okay, that's again, that's a controversial idea of hysteria, but you can certainly understand overwork and exhaustion. Uh, the other would have been nervous exhaustion. It is called for in weakened conditions of the body with feeble performance of the uterine function. It uh, in dysmenorrhea with uh, deficient menses, uterine colic, and in those cases where there's severe lumbar and bearing down pains, it will prove an efficient, an efficient drug. Uterine congestion and chronic uterine inflammation are often greatly relieved by specifically black hall. It acts promptly in spasmodic dysmenorrhea, especially with excessive flow. Uh, mineraj, mineraj, I have trouble with that word every time. Mineralgia due to malaria is promptly met with viburnum prunifolium, that's black hall. It is good remedy for uterine hemorrhaging, attending menopause, uh, amenorrhea, pale bloodless subjects. Uh, the menses are restored by it. Cramps in limbs attending pregnancy yield to both black hall and cramp bark. It is considered specific for cramps in the legs, not dependent on pregnancy especially when occurring at night. So if you get leg cramps at night, black hall is very good. And yes, uh, the viburnums have been recommended for that for centuries. The condition for which black hall is most valued is that of threatened abortion. It is the most prompt drug in the materia medica to check abortion, provided the membranes have not been ruptured. In all cases of habitual abortion, it should be given in small doses for a considerable length of time. There is abundant testimony to its value in this condition alone, and it gives it a high place among drugs. So, again, if you need to talk to your doctor about this herb, I would highly recommend going to Henriette's Herbal, printing out the information on viburnum, going to the Physician's Desk Reference for Herbal Medicine. I believe there's a free copy available on archive.org, by the way. I'm not sure if it's available for borrowing or if you can actually download it, but uh, you could definitely... Um, copy that information from there. 
And uh, if not, you can probably find one in your library. Rather expensive book. You have to buy one like I did. <laughs> it's, it's huge. As I've said before, it's like a 15-pound book. And give the doctors something they will understand in medical terms and respect. A lot of times the reason doctors are dismissive of people is we don't use their jargon, their terminology, anterior and exterior, and all that kind of stuff. We just use plain language. And they think, oh, this person doesn't know anything. So give them something written by a doctor or a pharmacist, and you can get a lot further with them uh, very, very often. Uh, let's see. Um, so King's also said Blackhaw as said to be a value in sterility. Uh, some cases of spermatorrhea are benefited by it. It's a word I have trouble pronouncing, by the way. False pains of pregnancy are readily controlled. You're talking like Braxton Hicks kind of thing. And for after pains, it is nearly as valuable. Um, Blackhall promptly lays a, a, a variant irritation. The late Professor Howe considered it one of the very best uterine tonics, et cetera, et cetera. So King's has a ton of information, specific indications in use, uterine irritability, uh, hyperesthesia, threatened abortion, uterine colic, dysmenorrhea with deficient menses, severe lumbar and bearing down pains, cramp-like Impulsive menstrual pain, intermittent painful contractions of pelvic tissue, after pains, and false pains of pregnancy, obstinate hiccup. It's also good for hiccups. Hiccups are another form of spasm. So that's a, the viburnums are good to have on hand, even if you just you know, want to get rid of a bad attack of hiccups. Now, let's get up to modern use. I'll try to wrap this one up. Uh, Plants for a Future says medicinal use of Gelder Rose. Gilder Rose is a powerful antispasmodic and is much used in the treatment of asthma, cramps, and other conditions such as colic or painful menstruation. It is also used as a sedative remedy for nervous conditions. The bark is antispasmodic, astringent, and sedative. The bark contains scopolatin, a coumarin that has a sedative effect on the uterus. A tea is used internally to relieve all types of spas spasms, including menstrual cramps, spasms after childbirth, and threatened miscarriage. It is also used in the treatment of nervous complaints and debility. The bark is harvested in autumn, etc., dried for later use. With rod, which, as I said, is very closely related to the um, Gilder Rose, bark and root are antispasmodic, diaphoretic, febrifuge, which means it brings down a fever. So it is specifically good for uh, bringing down fevers and the cramps and pains associated with bad fevers, by the way which they don't actually get into, but they say uh, it's also a tonic. Infusion has been used for recurrence, spasms, fevers, smallpox, and ague, as ague, as I've said before, like malarial fevers, usually. Sometimes it just means fever, but usually they're referring to malarial fevers. The infusion has also been used as a wash for the tongue. Smooth with rod, which is possum hall, which is one of ours, <laughs> a tea made from the bark is antispasmodic, diuretic, tonic, and a uterine sedative. And the black haw, which is the one we use so much here in the South for fruit, and the ones Native Americans and early Americans used for uh, herbal medicine, and we really ought to be making more use of, definitely. Uh, they call it stagberry, I guess, British name for black haw. Anyway, it says was used by the uh, North American Indians to treat dysentery and arrest hemorrhages of the uterus. It is now considered to be a specific treatment for the relief of menstrual pain. The bark contains scolopolitan, a coumarin that has a set of effect on the uterus, and salicin, a painkiller. Salicin is, you know, aspirin, essentially natural aspirin, that is used in making aspirin. The bark of the root and stems could be an abortifacient. So, again, take this information to your doctor, too. He's going to have to check that part out. Uh, anodyne, antispasmodic, astringent, nervine, and sedative. A tea used internally in the treatment of painful or heavy menstruation, prolapse of the uterus, morning sickness to prevent miscarriage, and to relieve spasms after childbirth. It is also used to treat convulsive disorders, colic, and other cramping pains that affect the bile ducts, hysteria, asthma, and palpitations of the nervous origin. The stem bark is harvested in autumn before the leaves change color, etc. Um, it, yeah, so again, cramp bark, all the viburnums, also good for nerve pain, nerve and muscle pain. And then they have the southern black haw, which they call the rusty black haw, 
Mark is antispasmodic and has been used in the treatment of cramps and colic. Now, what the, uh, the PDR, the Physician's Desk Reference for Herbal Medicine, says, this is what a doctor is going to look at first. Blackhaw effect. The drug has spasmolytic, spasmolytic and to date undefined effects on the uterus. Unproven uses, Blackhaw is used for complaints of dysmenorrhea. No health hazards or side effects are known in conjunction with proper administration of designated therapeutic so that's what I got to tell you about the viburnums. Um, very much seen as a women's herb for obvious reason. Uh, you know, many herbalists teach a lot of young women in our classes, and uh, it is generally recommended we keep on hand tinctures of viburnum and skullcap in case somebody in the class needs a little help. Um, also, very good for muscle pain, for nerve pain, for uh, hiccups and spasmodic uh, asthma and cramping, both astringent and it's going to help settle intestinal cramps for uh, all spasmodic cramping pains. Very good to have on hand. I cannot stress enough. I am absolutely not recommending this herb to be used in pregnancy. I am not. I am recommending if you think the herb could be beneficial to you, do your research, gather your research, and talk with your doctor or midwife or whomever you trust. One of the few times I would actually recommend walking in with a folder full of information and saying, you know, doctor, please take a look at this and tell me if you think it would be safe for me or something I can use. The onus is on them. All right, y'all. Have a wonderful week. And, um, I'll talk to you next time. God willing, it'll dry off a little bit. <laughs> Maybe I can get a little bit done outside and I can tell you about some of the herbs that are growing wild. I had planned to do a whole bunch of herbal videos this summer, but I can't seem to get enough of a break in the rain to get much done. Anyway, uh, have a great week. Don't forget uh, Missio Day. Check them out. Check out my articles. Please buy my books. I really appreciate it when you do. That's how I make my living and that's how I can spend this time gathering and offering you all this information have a just have a great week enjoy the end of august and uh, you know fall is going to be here soon enough so enjoy the last uh, vestiges of summer when you can. all right we'll talk to you next time the information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or condition Nothing I say or write has been evaluated or approved by the FDA. I'm not a doctor. The U.S. government does not recognize the practice of herbal medicine, and there is no governing body regulating herbalists. Therefore, I'm really just a guy who studies herbs. I'm not offering any advice. I won't even claim that anything I write or say is accurate or true. I can tell you what herbs have been traditionally used for. I can tell you my own experience and if I believe in herbs help me. I cannot nor would I tell you to do the same. If you use an herb anyone recommends, you are treating yourself. You take full responsibility for your health. Humans are individuals and no two are identical. What works for me may not work for you. You may have an allergy, a sensitivity, an underlying condition that no one else even shares and you don't even know about. Be careful with your health. By continuing to listen to my podcast or read my blog, you agree to be responsible for yourself, do your own research, make your own choices, and not to blame me for anything ever.